listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about the fireworks and the antics last night as President Trump delivered his fourth State of the Union address in Washington before a joint session of Congress. We saw things that I don't know that we've seen before. We saw the president refuse to shake Speaker Nancy Pelosi's hand, and then we saw Nancy Pelosi at the end of the speech take a copy of the president's speech and rip it up in front of him. Real animosity there on both sides. Uh, here to talk more about the speech itself and what we are seeing go on in Washington between Democrats and Republicans is Congressman Dan Kildee. He is a Democrat from Flint Township who represents Michigan's 5th District. Dan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. It's good to be back. So uh, let's start with your reaction to the president's speech. Lots of Democrats said they weren't going to go last night, and they boycotted the speech. Uh, what was your What was your takeaway? Well, first of all, on that issue, you know, I I'm elected to be in my seat, even when it's unpleasant, and that was the case last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an odd uh, speech. It was at times a campaign speech. Uh, and obviously the Republicans in the House and Senate responded by their chants. At times it was uh, more akin to the Oprah Winfrey show, where there were you know <laughs> surprises for the guests that he brought. Uh, unfortunately, it was weak on substance. But you know you, you got to give the president some credit. He stuck to a script. He was given a speech that was written for him, and unlike some of the predictions, he stayed on script. It, just felt like to me it was really more about playing to his base clearly um whipping up you know the support from those who believe in his more extreme views but really sadly missing the opportunity to pivot to those issues that he ran on and for which democrats in the house especially have been working uh but didn't he didn't take us up on that. He didn't take us up on infrastructure. He didn't take us up on the work that we've been doing on prescription drug prices, where he clearly could have and declared victory for the American people. It's more important to him that he win than we win. Mm-hmm. So uh, for a president who is as embattled as President Trump is, I guess that didn't terribly come across to me as surprising that he would use this opportunity to address the nation, to make the case for himself for re-election. I, I, I think maybe what was surprising, again, was the extent to which that partisanship got nasty. I mean, I think giving the, the Medal of Freedom, for instance, to someone as divisive as Rush Limbaugh, somebody who said awful, awful things about all kinds of different classes of Americans um, refusing to, to, to shake the speaker's hand. I mean, the, 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 there was a almost desperate, I think, tone and dynamic to this speech saying, essentially, I'm going to the mattress at this point and pulling out all the stops to convince Americans that, uh, that they ought to keep me in the job. Well, that's what he did. I mean, this you know, clearly was a, a 2020 campaign speech. We get it. Uh, you know, many of us just didn't feel like we wanted to be props in that show. <clears throat> but, you know, and, and he, he was, you know, in some ways, um, you got to give him credit for being somewhat masterful. I mean, taking these sympathetic cases, which makes it very difficult for us, we're, we're going to stand and applaud for a young child 
There's no question about it. We're going to, you know, stand and applaud for a 100-year-old veteran or for a young man who wants to be in Space Force. We're not going to allow those people to, you know, somehow be diminished. But where he cynically uses that opportunity is that he uses those cases to make the case for some of those more extreme policies that really have tremendous negative consequences for people like the people that he brought to the stage. Mm. Um, so it was, a, it was, I think, a bit of a cynical use of it, but you've got to give him credit for putting on a show uh, and, and sticking to his story. He did that. Mm. Uh, it was just a lost opportunity, I believe. And on the issue of Rush Limbaugh, look, nobody wishes what he's dealing with on any of even our worst enemies but that doesn't justify taking the highest civilian honor an honor that's reserved for the likes of john lewis and bestowing that upon somebody who has said the things and we all you know you can recount them said the things that he has said particularly on uh, issues of race that are as bigoted as anything you'll hear on the airwaves Mm -hmm. It's just a shame. Uh, we I mentioned earlier in the show that our own governor, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, was the person chosen to give the Democratic response to President Trump. I want to listen to just a little bit of what she said and then get your reaction uh, to her speech. It doesn't matter what the president says about the stock market. What matters is that millions of people struggle to get by or don't have enough money at the end of the month after paying for transportation, student loans, or prescription drugs. Okay, that was Governor Whitmer responding to the president's speech. Dan Kildee, what did you think of how she did? Well, she was right on point. You know, uh, the underlying point that she made was that the president says a lot of things. None of those things that he says actually translate to policy unless he chooses to do so. So he can talk about protecting people with pre-existing conditions. But at the same time, he makes that guarantee he's in federal court suing to take that protection away. And so there's a big gulf between the things that he says and that he actually does. And he plays a, more than a little fast and loose with the, with the truth. So I think it was important that Governor Whitmer made the statement that she did for its substance, for sure, but also to make the point that Michigan is critical to the future of our country. And the not-so-subtle point is that Michigan's really critical to the 2020 election. Mm. Uh, Governor Whitmer also talked in her response about the economy and how it's actually doing. This is something that the president is talking an awful lot about, taking a lot of credit for. Let's hear what Governor Whitmer had to say about that. As we witness the impeachment process in Washington, There are some things each of us, no matter our party, should demand. The truth matters. Facts matter. And no one should be above the law. Okay, I'm sorry. That was actually about impeachment, not the economy, that that clip. Um, The... uh, Respond to what she's saying there about, about the fact that this president has been impeached by the House, is likely to be exonerated by the Senate, maybe later today, uh, does that empower him to govern carte blanche without fear of oversight? Well, that's the fear that many of us have, is that he will take uh, the impeachment as, or the impeachment vote as some sort of a, 
uh, of a fast lane to do whatever he wants to do to align with his interpretation of the second article in the Constitution. He believes that it gives him the power to do anything he wants. Uh, if he believes that and acts accordingly, he's going to have another thing coming. We are we're not going to stop doing a big part of the job that we were elected to do because the Senate came to the determination that the House was correct and made its case, but they don't believe it rises to the level of impeachment. That's essentially what the Senate will vote today. Mm-hmm. But that's not a green light for him to do anything he wants. This is not, he's not a king. He's not an emperor. He's the president of the United States. He controls one-third of the power of the U.S. government, and the other two branches are as valid as he is, and he's going to find that out if he, if he uh, attempts to interpret these, this outcome any other way. So, so what is the mechanism going forward for restraining this president? Doesn't this send a signal, this exoneration in the Senate, that eh, he can do pretty much what he wants to do and there won't be real consequences? I mean, impeachment matters. It's, it's on his record. It will be there forever. But the fact that he won't be removed, doesn't that say that Congress doesn't have the control that it should over, over the executive well, that's how some would interpret it. Of course, you know, not every president is impeached, but that doesn't mean that we don't have the authority to provide oversight. In this particular case, just like with Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, there was an effort to impeach. That impeachment didn't uh, result in a conviction, but that doesn't erase all the other tools that we have. One of the most significant tools that Congress has is the power of the purse. Uh, the president you know, lives within the budget. He obviously skates around the edges of that when he has a chance to. But ultimately, um, you know, we will be able to exercise our oversight authority. Uh, And so I think while people might interpret the the acquittal vote today as some sort of a a green light and the end of any congressional oversight, that's simply not going to be the case. I want to talk a little about some of the bipartisan accomplishments from the past year, there was a trade agreement that got signed. It replaces NAFTA. That is uh, an issue that I know you have have been really involved with for a long time. Trade uh, that that trade agreement, its limitations. Talk about uh, the new trade agreement and and whether you think this is the kind of improvement that the president was promising. Well, you know, a year ago when I uh, when I came into office for my fourth term, I was appointed to the House Ways and Means Committee, which oversees trade, and so I got right into the middle of this. And to be honest, Stephen, I never imagined that we would get the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement in a sh- in shape that would allow me to support it. The deal that the president himself and his team had negotiated fell far short of the mark. So instead of just saying no. Uh, Democrats went to work, and we negotiated really significant improvements. Uh, I flew to Mexico City to meet directly with the president of Mexico on some of the issues, and we got an agreement that was far stronger in terms of our ability to enforce it. It's not perfect, but at the end of the day, it came down to a binary choice between continuing under the failed policies of NAFTA or going with this much more a robust set of tools that gives us at least a fighting chance to enforce the agreement on the Mexican government. So that becomes the question now, whether or not we're going to be able to push 
the Mexican government and the U.S. government to actually live up to the promise. We now have tools that allow us to do that. So, in, you know, in that case, it was truly a bipartisan success in the sense that both the president but Democrats in the House especially can take credit for the fact that this agreement rose to the level that it could get the bipartisan support that it ultimately got. And let's talk about the effect of this kind of agreement in districts like yours, where people have been really worried about jobs and protection for jobs and the effect of trade agreements on their jobs. Does this give the president a real boost that that he could carry into November? Well, you know, anytime there's a, a success, a bipartisan success, everybody who's associated associated with it gets to take credit for it. And, of course, the president manages to take credit for things that he has nothing to do with. So it certainly seems logical that he would take credit <laughs> for things that he might have had something to do with. But, you know, you know that's just the reality we live in. Um, you know, I think too many people on both sides of the aisle seem continually focused on how every decision will affect the next election. And, you know, if, if somehow we do something that accrues to the benefit of the president but it's mainly good for the people we represent, we ought to do it. Hmm. And then just have the argument about whether or not the president deserves another uh, term. But, you know, one of the frustrations about this place that, uh, that, that is really nerve-wracking is, is, like, from the moment the, the last election ends, there are some people in this town that will take every question and make every decision based on, the next election, well, you know, that doesn't make any sense. We run for these offices to actually do things, mm. not just to get reelected. Yeah. Uh, what about the president's approval ratings? Highest that they've ever been, 49% say he's doing a pretty good job. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, it says that this country's divided. Half of the country seem to be watching one movie, and the other half seem to be watching a completely different one. Um, you know, half of the country believes he's not doing a good job. Uh, this is a country that is divided, and it's divided in part, not just not not based on uh, you know issues so much or even values, but the lens through which they see this president hmm. is, I think, dramatically affecting the way they view him. Um, if you know, if if you watch Fox News every day, you get one view of Donald Trump that is completely contradictory. Than if you're, you know, reading the New York Times, Washington Post, or, or, you know, listening to broadcasts like this one or others that tend to have a more factual basis. But there's nothing, not much that we can do about that except try to, you know, introduce as many facts to the argument as we can and hope mm -hmm. that enough people on the margins are persuaded. So, so we've got about a minute left. I, I really want to get your reaction to. Speaker Pelosi's tearing up of the president's speech. I've seen a lot of traffic on social media about that, uh, people uh, criticizing her for that. What was what was your take? I understand the sentiment. I really do. Uh, the president refused to shake her hand at the outset of the speech. Uh, I thought the speech was, it was full of falsehoods, for sure. But it's not the choice I would make, not because I didn't share the sentiment, but because it reinforces an impression that uh, I think, unfortunately, works against us in the long run. It reinforces the impression uh, that perhaps we're not open 
to, to conversation. And look, I like I said, I totally get it. I share the sentiment. Hmm. It just isn't the choice that I would have made. Hmm. Okay. Dan Kildy, Democrat from Flint Township, who represents Michigan's 5th District. Always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Hmm. All right. That's going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow when we talk with the author of a book about whether we should be challenging or protecting young minds. Are we coddling young minds, especially on college campuses? This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.